Amen. We all turn with me, if, if you will, your Bibles to Second Peter chapter one. We should be able to finish this chapter tonight. Uh, we're moving like snails through here, so we're going to get back at our study here, um, and I want us to pick up in verse sixteen, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. I was really excited about this. That's why I didn't want to. Two weeks ago, we kind of could have moved into this, but I wanted to keep it separate for like its own study. And so tonight we're going to tackle this passage. So if you'd read with me Second Peter chapter 1, 16 through the end of the chapter. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day, da- day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Wonderful passage of Scripture. And it's speaking of, to start off, the certainty. Really, this is dealing with the certainty of Christ's coming. You know, the Old Testament uh, foretold His first coming. And you probably heard it before that there's at least 66 major prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus that were literally fulfilled at His first coming. You can just compare the Old Testament verse from Isaiah to what happened in Matthew and, and say, here it is. Okay. Well, there's, there's also the foretelling in the Old Testament and New Testament of Christ's return, His second coming. That, that's what we're looking for. And this passage, among other passages in the Bible, speaks uh, of the certainty of His coming. There's two witnesses, basically, or two assurances that were given just in this passage. One is the apostolic witness, or the witness of the apostles, the eyewitnesses that they were. The second is, is the, uh, the Word of God, okay, the prophetic Word of God and the certainty or the sureness of the Word of God. And he says, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Now, a lot of people have, it's not a new thing, but through the years and still to this day followed cunningly devised fables, right? I know Christians that were one, that were one time new age and they knew all the details about it and they could tell, they could spot it and point it out now that they were believers. They come out of that and were Christians. But at some point they followed cunningly devised fables. And uh, there are other religions like Mormonism. It's a cunningly devised fable. There are seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, Paul says in in 1 Timothy. And those are, obviously their origin is demonic. It's it's Satan putting these little thoughts in the hearts and minds of men and deceiving them. Okay? He can appear like an angel of light, but he's not. But there's also things that arise just out of the perverseness of men's own hearts. It's not all Satan. It could be someone trying to, uh, to make a buck, so to speak, and to get a following after them. And there's all kinds of combinations of those things as well. But they're cunningly devised fables, but we're, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. And that's not what, not what Peter is preaching. And that's not what we're believing. And it's not what we're following after. We're following after the truth. Christianity is historically and factually reliable. Not that this is a whole study on that tonight. It would take more than tonight to go through that. Has anybody in here studied or spent much time looking at apologetics? And that's basically a defense of, of the Bible and the truths of the Bible and the truth of God and the way that the Bible lays it out there. Uh, the Bible, uh, Christianity is historically and factually reliable. And one thing that Peter does here in this passage, he joins the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus did the same thing. As it is written, as it is written, how many times did Jesus say that? Or how many times was it fulfilled in his life? Jesus did such and such that the scripture may be fulfilled. What's, he's linking the Old Testament and the New Testament together that Christ is the promise of the Old Testament. 
Christ is the fulfillment of the, New, of the Old Testament. And once we have Jesus, the, the, Old, Test, the Old Testament, the, that covenant, it's not stupid, it's not evil, but it's passed away. It's been fulfilled. We've moved on because Christ has come. And so now there's the promise of His second coming that's being given here. Peter talks a lot about that. And uh, he says he was one of the eyewitnesses. Okay? Jesus, was, Jesus had many eyewitnesses to His life, to His miracles, to His sermon, to His birth. There were shepherds that testified you know, of His birth in the manger. There were... There were uh, and there's testimony all through his life. This thing was not done in a corner, in a closet, in some little dark chamber that you know nobody had access to. He walked the streets of Jerusalem publicly. He lived in a historical period of time where there were real Caesars and real governors and Herod was a king and so forth. And, and everything was done publicly. He said this, is, this was not done in a closet or in a corner somewhere. And when he died and rose again, from uh, died on the cross, people were there beholding. And when Rome, the power of Rome and the government of Rome is witnessing this because it was their job to make sure that he was died as a criminal. Uh, the, the Jews were there mocking him. They didn't believe. And when he rose from the dead, he appeared at least three occasions after his resurrection. After the third day, when he rose again the third day, he appeared alive at least three occasions to his disciples. And at one point, there, was, uh, there were uh, above 500 people at one time. That's a big group of people. 500 people wouldn't fit in this room. Okay, And at one occasion, he appeared to over 500 people at once. Who at the writing of the, this epistle or the Gospels, and these epistles, most of them were still living. They could have said, no, 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 if they read this. and said, that's not true. You understand the point that it's very reliable. This is not a study on that per se, but it's not that we have to be eyewitnesses because we were not. We were not physically there to see Jesus when He lived on this earth or any part of that or the resurrection. But it is important what we believe and that we believe the truth. And it is important that if we're going to believe this and it's going to be promoted and propagated and proclaimed throughout the whole world for all eternity that Christ is Lord, that He was born into Bethlehem, the Son of God became a man you know, and lived this life and rose again. It is important that He has eyewitnesses. Amen? Peter is one of those. And so, uh, Jesus told Thomas that uh, you know the story at the end of uh, John chapter 20 uh, where Jesus had appeared to His disciples one time and Thomas was not present with them on this particular occasion. This is after His resurrection. Okay? And Thomas comes in later and missed it, basically. The Lord came, spoke to him, left, and they said, Thomas, you should have been here. The Lord came to us. It was awesome. It was wonderful. Thomas says, I, I, unless I can touch those nail prints in his hand and thrust my hand in his side, I will not believe. So we get the name Doub Doubting Thomas. Okay, It's easy to pick on him, but I think we probably in our lives made similar uh, remarks or, or similar, similar attitude. Well, eight days later with the door shut and the disciples were there and Thomas was with them this time, Jesus appeared again. And He came to Thomas and, and He said, Thomas, uh, because you've seen, you believe. He says, reach out your hands and touch My hands. Put your hands in the print of the nails and thrust your hand in My side and be not faithless, but believing. He rebuked him, but he commanded him. And he says, because you've seen, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. To me, that's, that's us. Okay, That's everyone you witness to. That's everyone that's ever come to Christ that didn't live in Jerusalem at that period of time. That's everybody. Because we're blessed. We haven't seen physically, but it's important to know there were those that did. And we can believe their testimony. We can believe their account and that it's reliable. And so it's important to know that what we believe is true. I want you to look in your Bibles. Keep your spot marked in 2 Peter. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. There's no other faith or religion that has this type of, of evidence and background and strength and support and reality to it. The Holy Ghost bears witness, but facts in history. This was not done in some you know, sick, warped person's mind and he spit it out and a bunch of people believe it. Those things happen as well. 
This is historically reliable. And so Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, let's read in verse 3 through 7. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This is not cunningly devised fables. That's the point of this, okay? He died according to the Scriptures. What Scriptures were present when Jesus came and died? The Old Testament. All the prophecies, right? Starting from Genesis all the way through. And that He was buried and that He rose again the third day. How? According to the Scriptures. And that He was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, He was seen of James, that's the half-brother of Jesus, okay, who was not a believer until the resurrection. Then of all the apostles, and last of all, He was seen of me also, and that was on the road to Damascus as one born out of due time. So Paul would be like that 12th, I guess you would say Judas hanged himself. Paul would be like that, that 12th apostle that the Lord really appeared to in that way. And so um, it's very exciting and it's very uh, comforting to know that what we believe is based upon truth. And so when Peter and others in the Bible speak or spoke about or wrote about Christ's coming in glory, His second coming, they knew what they were talking about. They knew what they were talking about. Peter had seen a glimpse of this heavenly glory of how the Lord's going to come back the second time. You know it's going to be different, right? The, the, the Bible tells us that. The first time He came to... You read about it in Isaiah 53 as a lamb led to the slaughter. You know, He opened not His mouth. He was... He was just, uh, you know, taken from judgment and, and so forth. And it was uh, a natural, in, in a sense, it was supernatural, but a natural physical body like we have. He died a real death, real blood that came out, though he was born of a virgin and, and so forth. But the second time he comes, he's not coming to be the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. That was the whole purpose of his first coming, all the way to that cross. The second time he comes, since that has been finished, he totally completed it. That's just, just, we put it away. Okay, we move on. He's coming to reign and rule as the sovereign God and King over all the earth and over all creation. And the earth has never had, the earth has had powerful kings and rulers and empires. History records them and you can read about them. It's never had the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's who Jesus is. And he's coming back and it's going to be different. Not a little babe in a manger. When he comes back, it says in Revelation, every eye is going to behold him. Everybody's going to see him. And he's going to be different. It's going to be wonderful. And we're going to be like him, the Bible says. We'll never become God. We'll always be the people of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus forever and ever. But we'll be like him. So I want us to read because the Bible tells of of the, what it's going to be like when He comes. And, and uh, j- turn with me if you would in your Bibles. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 16. Now this is really what Peter is talking about. In 2 Peter, when he said, we heard this voice from glory and we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. This specifically is what he's referring to. You know, that voice that said, uh, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That, that was the Father speaking. The Father spoke that at the baptism of Jesus, at John's baptism, when He was first basically introduced to the world publicly at 30 years old, right? So we read that in the, in the Gospels. That, but that same voice came on the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter and James and John were with the Lord. He brought them apart to be with Him for this special event. And He wanted them to see. So I want you to look at chapter 16, the end of the chapter, verses 27 and 28. Then we're going to go on into chapter 17. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels. That's not the first coming, okay? And then He shall reward every man according to His works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man 
coming in His kingdom. Now, if we were just left with that and just there was no follow-up, so to speak, or explanation of it, we could put a thousand different explanations to that little passage. There's some standing here which will not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. What does that mean? Well, they're going to see Him at His resurrection. They're going to see Him... Well, the Bible doesn't leave it for us to question because we keep reading. After six days, and every Bible scholar agrees, every uh, conservative Bible scholar that I've ever read agrees. So we keep reading chapter 17. After six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, His brother, and bringeth them up into, into a high mountain apart. We don't know what mountain it is. Peter calls it the Holy Mount. We don't really know. It's probably a good thing because if we did know, there'd be shrines built all over it probably and people going and, and being idolatrous on the mountain. But he goes to this mountain and says, and he was transfigured before them and his face did shine as the sun and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles or three memorials or some type of statues or pillars or something. One for thee, one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold, a voice out of the cloud. This is what he's referring to in Second Peter. He heard this voice from the excellent glory while we were on the mount. A voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Aren't you glad we have that? It just explains it more. We have all these prophecies about the first coming that were fulfilled. And here, it was like they got a little glimpse or a little taste of what it was going to be like at the second coming. And don't tell anybody, obviously not even the other disciples, okay? Don't tell them uh, anyone until the Son of Man be risen. I still have to go to the cross. I'm going to rise again. After that, then you, you make this known. And I want to read this uh, from a commentary that I was reading. It was this, this moment, this transfiguration where these three men got to be part of this. It was a moment where God uh, spoke to Peter, James, and John and gave them a view of the kingdom in miniature. I'm talking about the com coming kingdom. The coming kingdom. All right, They beheld the Lord as He will yet be when he returns to take his great power and reign. What they saw and heard on the mount confirmed the word of prophecy given in the Old Testament. And so, uh, it was just a confirmation. It was, it was the goodness of God to give that glimpse and to let people see what was coming. What were the three? There was three testimonies basically on that mount. And Peter refers to them all. We can turn back to Second Peter. They were eyewitnesses. Okay, so first of all, he's talking about specifically not just eyewitnesses of Jesus. A lot of people saw Jesus when He walked around on the earth. He says we were eyewitnesses of His glory. This specific glory. And He's speaking about His coming kingdom in His glory and in His majesty. He says we were eyewitnesses. So they, they saw. The Bible says and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. And then they got to see Him. These three disciples on the mount in a way that others did not. We're going to see Him in that way. His face shining like the sun. His garments white as snow. And, 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 uh, and so forth. And then there was the, the hearing. They heard the voice of the Father. They heard the voice and were afraid, right? This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And they, they fell down on their faces. So they, they were eyewitnesses. They heard the voice. And then uh, they were the... The, they, there was the physical appearance of Jesus being changed, which again, they were eyewitnesses to that. It, it was, it, they got to see and be part of all of this. And I thank the Lord again that He's given us that. Uh, he received glory from the Father. Let's look at this in, in, in verse 17. Back in 
First, Second Peter 1, 17. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And so there's this voice that, that the Father is giving testimony or witness to that this is my Son. And they got to hear it. I want to look at a couple of verses here as well. I want you to turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 1. Let me 17. John 17, verse 1. Now this is right. The, the, the Last Supper, the night, the last night the Lord was with His disciples. He was going to be arrested this night, crucified the next day. And it says in John 17, 1, These words spake Jesus and lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son also may glorify thee. Skip down to verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So this is a glory Jesus already had. He set it aside. He never set aside His deity. But He did set aside His glory and humbled Himself and became a man, right? Uh, and now He's saying, now glorify me with the glory that I had before the world began, okay? And then skip down to verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on Me through their word, that they all may be one, as Thou, Father, art in Me, and I in Thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that Thou hast sent Me. And the glory which Thou gavest Me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. That is amazing. That this glory of God, He wants us to be partaker. Isn't that what the Bible said? Isn't that what it says in First Peter when we studied uh, earlier, or earlier in this chapter? I'm sorry that we are partakers of His divine nature. That is a, a, a really. I don't know how many kings would or rulers that were superior to everybody else, and everybody ruled over everybody would allow someone in that kind of blessing or relationship to call Christ our brother and God our Father. And He says, and I'm making you partakers of my divine nature. Divine has to do with God. It's a wonderful thing. And that's what He's speaking of here. Father, You and me, me and You, we're one. And then all these that You've given me are part of my body. Think about that. He's the head. We're part of the body. We're one in Christ and partakers of His divine nature. And we share in that glory. And so, uh, again, this, this gave a mini picture. The Mount of Transfiguration, which Peter's talking about, gave a mini, mini, miniature snapshot, or a really good snapshot, a picture of the kingdom and the second coming of Christ when He's going to come and rule and reign. The kingdom of God is going to be made up on this earth. It's going to be made up of Old Testament saints. It's going to be made up of New Testament blood-bought believers like we are. And it's in the apostles and elders and so forth as well. That's part of that's the kingdom of God. And we're going to be part of that. Amen. And it's going to be wonderful. And there's one king. There's not a bunch of kings. He'll be king. And we're glad that he is. So let's keep reading. He says, let's look at verse 19. We have also a more sure word. I'm back in, in Second Peter. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. When it says we have a more sure word of prophecy, it's not mean it's more, it's better necessarily than um, the voice from heaven. Okay, because that's the first one he was speaking about, the prophecy. More sure word, more sure uh, word of prophecy, he says that we have, it means confirmed or well established. That's all that that means. We have a confirmed and well-established word of prophecy. What is it? It's the word of God. Okay? It's the word of God. Again, it's, it's, a, it's a treasure. The word of God is a treasure. I can promise you, if you lived in China right now and you were a believer and loved the Lord with all your heart, it would be a treasure to you to have the Bible. You've heard the stories, and I've heard the stories where you know, the underground churches in China or places like China... Uh, where they're not allowed to freely worship the Lord and buy and sell Bibles and things like that, where, where um, a lot of missionaries from the West that are Christians smuggle those Bibles in 
and, uh, and circulate them in the churches. And, and maybe one church has one Bible and they'll divide it up in sections or even pages and they'll let this believer study this page and learn it you know, front and back and then they'll rotate it around. It's a treasure. Well, we have this more sure word of prophecy. It means it's well established. And the Bible says you you do well to take heed. Okay, that's what Peter is saying. You do well to take heed to the sure word of prophecy. That's all the word of God. It means uh, one one little explanation of it I heard was pay attention in your heart. You do well to take heed till the day day star uh, day dawn in your hearts and day star arise. Take uh, pay attention in your heart to God's word. It's a lamp of prophecy that lights our way. And when it says in a dark place, Peter says, this light that shines in a dark place. What's the dark place, y'all? It's the world. The whole world is lost in the darkness of sin. It's referred to as darkness, the, the spiritual darkness that's around us. But God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It lights our way. We need to take heed to that. We need to to zero in on that. We need to follow that. We need to cherish it. We need to love it. We need to uh, obey it and take heed to it because it's the only light. There's not a bunch of lights. There's Christ, the light of the world, and Christ in His people. And that's it. In the light of His Word. Amen? But there's nothing else. Nice things, nice people. That's not the light of the world. That's not a light shining in a dark place. It's Christ, the light of the world. In Him, in His church, and in His those that have given their lives to Him, and in and through His Word, and that's what we take heed to. And so, it's a sure word of prophecy that lights our word. I want to read a little more from this commentary. I'm going to read a, a pretty good bit. It is intended by God to illumine our paths and give light in our souls until the day dawn and the day star arise at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is all important then that we give heed to that which has been revealed in the prophetic scriptures. On the other hand, we need to be careful lest we take some of the scriptures. And that's what he talks about here. And we're going to get into it knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We're going to spend the rest of our time talking about this. So it is, it is intended by the Lord that He not just speak this wonderful, beautiful, true Word and people say, oh, isn't that wonderful? It is intended for men to obey it, to heed it, to take it to heart, to adjust their lives to it. If it's the Word of God. If Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in Me. That's what He says in John 14, right? You know what? He intends for us to believe in Him. And so whatever he lays out for us in his word, he intends for us to take heed to it. And that's what the author is saying. But we do well to take heed. On the other hand, he says we need to be careful lest we take some of the scriptures. And I like the way this was laid out out of their connection and endeavor to interpret them according to specific incidents rather than in accordance with the entire plan of God as revealed in his word. And so what, he's, what is he saying here? We have to be careful as believers. I would say at all ages, anybody that's got the Word of God in their hand, all of us, we need to be careful of it. Not to take some portion of Scripture, a verse, a passage, a chapter, a thought, okay? It's all true and it's all truth. But to elevate it in such a sense that we, we uh, separate it from the rest of the Bible, and it's no longer connected to the whole Bible. And we can build a religion around that. We can build a belief system or a doctrine around that. And we need to be careful not to do that. And I think that's one of the right explanations of this passage that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. I think that's one explanation. I think it's a good one. I think it's a true lesson. That's not the only one. We're going to look at another one in a second. And so, uh, no prophecy of Scripture is of its own interpretation. Scripture interprets Scripture. Uh, here a little, there a little. That's how doctrine is built. It says, a little here, little there, line upon line, precept upon precept, word upon word, and you build it. 
you build it. You build a doctrine. The Holy Ghost is our teacher who leads us and guides us. And all of us are human, even as Christians, and we can get off a little bit. And God steers us back. He steers us back by His Spirit and by the revealed Word of God. It's got to fit in with the rest of the Word of God. If somebody said, well, God's a God of love, and so therefore, I don't think He's going to send anybody to hell. Y'all know what that is called? That's a belief. Ultimate reconciliation. That, and it's, it's promoted in Christian circles. It's preached in, quote, Christian churches. That even Satan and the demons and everybody, ultimate Judas, everybody's ultimately going to be reconciled to God. And they might have some scriptures that he might be, you know, that Christ may be all in all and things like that. And he's Lord over all. And so they'll take scriptures like that and they'll build this belief system. It's totally contrary to the rest of the Bible. Because I can turn to one passage, I believe in Revelation uh, 20, or maybe it's 21, where he's talking about the, uh, the great white throne judgment. He says, let him that's just, let him be just still. Him that's holy, let him be holy still. Him that's wicked you know, uh, and lost, let him be lost still. There's not this changing from one place to the other. Uh, it's appointed unto men once to die, but after that, the judgment. It says in Hebrews chapter 9. So we can start looking at a lot of scriptures. If we put it all together, we might just hear somebody say that. And you say, wow, he had some scriptures to go along with that. But we really put it and stick it back in the scriptures that they use back into the teachings that are throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Then we're going to see, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not a sound doctrine. I don't hate this person, but the doctrine is wrong. I can go to them. I can tell them. I can explain it to them. I can show them in the scriptures that it's wrong. I can pray with them and so forth. But I don't sit under that. I don't receive it. I don't say, well, I'll just listen to the good stuff and throw out the bad. You, you separate from that. You mark them that cause division of, divisions and offenses contrary to sound doctrine. Mark them and avoid them. And so that's how we do it, though. So that's one good explanation. You don't dissect a scripture. You can pull out a scripture and study it all you want. Memorize it. Look at it. Love it. Study it deeper. But you don't uh, separate it from the rest of the Bible it's still taken in the context of the teachings of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. So I pray that that makes sense. Um, he says, none can be fully understood apart. No Scripture can be fully understood apart from the rest. And that does make sense. Okay? Uh, it does make sense. You can think of a lot of Scriptures like that 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 would apply. He makes a point here, this author, Rome takes, or the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, takes this, con, uh, this scripture about no prophecy of scriptures of any private interpretation. Catholic Church takes that and uses it to forbid people, the, the common man, from studying the Bible on their own. That's not what that scripture is talking about. But that's the way that they use it. Uh, it's, it's, it's forbidden for people to study. They can't possibly understand it outside of the Catholic Church. We need the Catholic Church to explain it to you. And so, but that's not what Peter's talking about. Um, it, it says, it, be guided, guided directly rather than through the interpretation put upon it by the church and its councils. It forbids men to be guided by the Word of God uh, alone. But it is not that at all that Peter had in mind. Rather, the folly of taking some portion of prophetic word and endeavoring to apply it to some special circumstances while failing to note its context and its connection with the general trend of prophecy as a whole. This is a snare, he said, and some people have fallen into it. I just think it's a good point, a very good point and something we need to take uh, heed to. And so... Uh, Anyway, I want, to, I want to get back to this a little bit further. So let's, let's look at this when he says that knowing first that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. I'll give another explanation of that that I also think is correct. He's speaking here about origin. Where did it come from? Because he says, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but, by, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. 
And so, uh, this, this is the first principle of truth, that no prophecy is self-originated by, uh, by the speaker or from, or from impulse of man or from his own mind. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So that's an important truth as well from the Bible. Though we don't have the Word of God and the prophecies and the Scriptures that came by this impulse of a man. It didn't originate from any man. God spoke through a donkey in the Old Testament, right? We use that all the time. So it's not from the impulse of a man. It's from the Lord. That is a teaching here. No prophecy of Scripture. And you'll hear people say, you'll hear people say, well, Paul said this and Peter said that. You know, really, or Paul's Gospel was this. You know what? It's God's Gospel. It's the Gospel of God. It's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the Gospel of grace. And he chose Paul to be uh, probably the greatest uh, proponent or spreader of that Gospel in the early church that the world has seen. And so, but the point is, it's, it's the Lord's. The prophecy in the, is the total revelation of God. It's not just one specific prophecy. The whole prophetic word. So keep that in mind. That's what Peter's talking about. It didn't come by the will of man. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That word moved is an important word too. Because you might picture, you might have seen it maybe in a movie or a video or something like that of, of someone uh, at, a, at a seance or someone that was uh, demon-possessed and they're sitting around and this demonic spirit takes over them and their eyes are closed and they begin to write or something like that. It's weird. It's bizarre. There are demonic influences like that. So the person doesn't even know what they're doing. It's kind of like they wake up later, they're out of the spell, and they didn't even realize what they did. Sigmund Freud said that his whole uh, psychoanalysis theory came from a demon that came and spoke to him and gave him the whole thing and he, and he wrote it down. But uh, that's not what is spoken of here when it says holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. First of all, they were holy men of God. So they're already men of God. They knew the Lord. They walked with the Lord. He didn't just get some stranger that didn't know God. Then they go into a trance and they write out all the Gospels or something like that. He was holy men of God that knew God and walked with the Lord and they were separated unto God. That's their holiness unto the Lord. Okay? So... These weren't strangers to the Lord and to the truth that had already been revealed to them and to God Himself. They were holy men of God. The word moved there, they were moved by the Holy Ghost, literally means uh, they were born along or carried along. Uh, the same the illustration that's given in, the, in the, uh, the Bible dictionaries is like wind. The wind that blows and fills up a sail and it leads the ship, blows the ship and you know, steers it basically. That's what the Holy Ghost did. Here's the man. That's like the ship. Got his sails up. He knows God. He's walking with God. And the Holy Ghost blows or moves. And it is the Holy Spirit is the one that steers that ship where to go or that writing of Scripture or that prophetic word where to go. And it, it, it makes sense that way. The Lord moved upon these men that wrote the Bible in such a way that their minds were, what their, their words that they wrote were in fact the very words of God. But they, they weren't, obliv like, like I said, in some trance, didn't know what they were doing. Like you picture someone demon-possessed and they, they speak with a different voice that's not their voice and something they're writing and they have this supernatural strength that's not, and, they, and then they come out of it, so to speak. It's not at all. They knew God. They walked with God. The Lord blew by His Spirit and steered them and moved them along to write exactly what He wanted written. And so when He says private, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. That means personal or one's own. Interpretation means a release, i.e., or, or in other words, no prophecy is a personal release or from the prophet's own mind or human impulse. You could sit down tonight just in your humanity and think of poetry and think of a fictional story to write. You know, just things that come to your mind and thoughts. And some people have come up with religions that way or belief systems that way. 
Um, but that's not at all what's happened here. Scripture originated with God, not man. I'll say it again. Scripture originated with God, not man. It is divine in origin. Totally divine. The Bible itself, the 66 books of the Bible, in and of themselves, are miraculous. And it's a divine origin that we have. And I want to read a little bit more and close with uh, a few thoughts here. When the, prophets sat, when the prophets sat down to write, the authors of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, when they sat down to write, they did not give their own private interpretation of events or their, or their own conclusions. And so I really think this was going to happen next. I really think this is why God did it. Do you ever read that in the Bible? Hosea or somebody saying, but God really meant this. It says this, but really here's what God meant. They don't do that. They don't do that. They give you the word from the Lord. And uh, Dr. D.T. Young writes this. And I will read this little paragraph. So the text rightly understood, the text that we're studying in Second Peter, rightly understood asserts that the Scripture is not human in its ultimate origin. It is God's interpretation, not man's. We often hear of certain statements of Scripture as representing David's opinion or Paul's opinion or Peter's opinion. Yet strictly speaking, we have no man's opinion in those holy writings. It is all God's interpretation of things. No prophecy of the Scripture represents an individual's interpretation. Men spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What they wrote was not a concoction of their own ideas, and it was not the result of human imagination, insight, or speculation. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. God directed these men as, as to the very words to write, and He did not destroy, this is interesting too, the individuality or style of their writers. Can you pick up, if you've studied the Bible and read for a while, could you pick up... Uh, any of Paul's epistles or writings and tell that his writing style and personality, even in those writings, is a little different than James when you read James or John, that they're different, okay? And, but yet, both of these, all of them wrote exactly what God wanted, but he didn't take away their individuality of, of writing, and yet when it was all said and done, and the Bible's all finished and their epistles finished, it's exactly what God wanted written. It's kind of, that's, that's an amazing thing as well. But uh, a couple more statements here. It is important that we stand firmly, and I'm going to close with this, important that we stand firmly as believers for the ver verbal, plenary inspiration of the inherent Word. And I'm going to give definitions of these words. It was good for me to study it as well. That we stand firmly for the verbal, plenary inspiration of the inerrant Word of God. By verbal inspiration, we mean that the words as originally penned by the 40 or more human writers were God-breathed. Isn't that what the, the Bible tells us? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Means God breathed. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Same thing, God breathed just like He, he uh, breathed into man and man became a living soul, it says in Genesis. Same thing. So it's the living word of God. It's important that we believe that it's all inspired by God and originated from God and not men. And every cult that's out there, and I would say Christian cult, Christian that starts off Christian, you know, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, anything like that, that that says they're Christian and veers off, it, it's all going to, uh, they're going to say something about the Word of God. You know, they're going to say it's going to come down to the Word of God. They're going to change it and they're going to say, well, even Muslims, which is not a Christian cult at all, but Muslims, they'll say, well, we, we believe the, the Bible or we believe in, in Jesus, but... Um, but you can't, we say, well, the Scriptures say so-and-so. And they say, well, you can't trust the Scriptures because they was, it was corrupted over the years. So the whole thing, what, what value is it? What eternal value of truth is it at all to mankind if it's been corrupted over the years? Here's something I've always thought, y'all. When I'm having that discussion with people or argument with people or trying to share that, 
Uh, and they, they're of that mindset. Well, it's men, men wrote the Bible. They wrote, you can make it say whatever you want it to say, and people have perverted it, changed it. We don't even have the reliable scriptures anymore, and on and on and on. And I'll think to myself, if God is God, and He's a big enough God, a miracle working God, that He can speak the world into existence in six literal days, or that He's big enough to flood the entire earth in a worldwide flood, or raise the dead. If he's if he is that God, then he's big enough to protect his word. I know that there are perversions, but that doesn't mean there's not a real in there somewhere. Okay. In other words, with all the perversions, billion perversions of the word of God, there still is the truth. We've talked about it before. All the perversions added up don't negate the truth. The truth is still the truth. And God is a big enough God to keep it and have it for men and present it to men. I believe that. Or what kind of God do we have? He's, oh no, the Word of God got away from me. It got corrupted and men corrupted it. Now whatever will I do? I don't know how to save people or reveal myself to people any longer. He's able to keep His Word. And I believe we have it. Okay? As originally written, uh, it's in truth. So that's the verbal inspiration of the Word. God did not give a general outline or some basic ideas and then let the writers phrase it as they wished. They were the very... They wrote... Uh, what they were given by the Holy Ghost. Okay, that was verbal inspiration. Plenary means that all of the Bible is equally God-given from Genesis to Revelation. That's important as well. I know I say it a lot lately because I think it's current and, and, and applicable to our time that we're seeing more and more people reject the Old Testament. They, Christians that, that want nothing to do with the Old Testament, they hate it. They are afraid of it. They stay away from it. They mock it. They ridicule it. But plenary means that all of the Bible is equally God-given. does not mean that every portion of it is necessarily uh, something I have to follow, like the, the laws that were given to Israel and the foods to eat and not eat, or the feasts to keep. I'm not a Hebrew, and I'm not under that old covenant. But it doesn't mean that that word that's given in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy is not the word of God. It was also a type and shadow of Christ and things that relate to our walk with the Lord. And it's spiritual and it's wonderful and it's holy, Paul said. And so it's all given by inspiration of God from Genesis to Revelation. It is the word of God. And by inerrant, we mean that the resultant word of God is totally without error. That's all that means. Inerrant means without error. Uh, in the original, not only, I like this, not only in doctrine, how many people you say here say that? Well, it's fine. The Bible's fine for, you know, Jesus and believing in Him and spiritual things, but it has no relevance to any other part of life. Therefore, they reject creation, you know, or a worldwide flood or something like that. Uh, but there, it's, it's without error in the original, not only in doctrine, but in history, science, chronology, and in all other areas. I'm going to close with this scripture. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. I'm going to read it again. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. And, and this, this is a very important passage to me. Uh, I think to the church. All Scripture is, certainly. But this is what we studied tonight. And we could study on you know, apologetics and defense of the faith and so forth. And I encourage you to do that on, on your own. Dave Hunt was so wonderful with that. And I still read so much of his writings. But... Uh, that it, the, the key to me is that it originated with God. So, as soon as you begin to throw out little parts that this doesn't make sense, we sit in judgment, you know, like some professor looking at the Bible, saying, I, I can buy this, I can buy, oh, but this, this is ridiculous here. This part here about him walking on the water. Physics says that a man can't walk on the water, okay? Uh, evolutionists prove that creation has taken place, uh, that, that life evolved over, and they change it all the time. 
one of the figures I've heard is three and a half billion years. Uh, and so it's, it's proved that. And then when that doesn't fit, they'll change it to four and a half billion years if they want to. And they'll throw it all out there. But, but it originated with God. And He knows what He's talking about. And I can trust it. And His Word is reliable. It's the Holy Ghost teaching spiritual things. But spiritual things also has to do with everything in life. If He's given an example or of, of a farmer farming the field and a, a grain of wheat's got to fall to the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it falls ground, to the ground and dies, then it's going to bear, grow up and bear much fruit. Everything that the Lord says, everything He gives us in His Word is true. And we can count on it. If you start rejecting parts of it, you're going to find somebody that before long is not a believer at all. It's going to erode very quickly at their faith. And we see that with so many. Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, will He find faith on the earth? I'm not sticking my head in the sand and denying science or anything like that. I'm simply saying God's Word is true. He's the ultimate authority on everything. We can believe His Word. I don't have to apologize for it. I don't have to doctor it up or change it to make it fit 20th century, 21st century life uh, and science and so forth. Uh, it is what it is. I'm going to let it stand on its own. And long after I'm dead, the Word of God will still be here. He doesn't need me to apologize for it. He doesn't need me to explain it in a way that's acceptable to the masses of people. Uh, it's forever settled in heaven. He's the one that writes about the ends of the earth and the ends of the world and how it's going to all end. It'll still be standing. Christ will still be standing. The people of God will still be standing. And Peter, the reason we're stressing the importance of the Word of God, how would we know that the Lord's coming back again other than the Word of God telling us that? And we have a sure word, a more sure word of prophecy. That's the prophetic word that was given. None of us were eyewitnesses to that majesty and glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. I thank God that there were witnesses, but we weren't. But we have a more sure word of prophecy, he says. We do well to take heed. Okay? The Lord's coming back. That's what he's saying. Take heed to the word of God. And that's what he's given us there in his word. Y'all just pray with me tonight.